You're listening to Work Human Radio. And here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another edition of Work Human Radio, pioneered by Global Force. I'm your host, Mike Wood. And this week, we're going to be talking to Rabbi David Lappin. Rabbi Lappin will be speaking at Work Human 2019, and we wanted to give you a sneak peek into his session. So Sarah Payne interviewed him on his life growing up in South Africa, working for Nelson Mandela's administration, inclusivity at work, and how we should be opening people up instead of closing them down. So here's that interview, and don't forget to visit www.workhuman.com to register for the main event and to see Rabbi Lappin along with Brene Brown, Gary Hamill, Kat Cole, and over 60 of the top speakers in business and HR. Enjoy the interview. So first, I just wanted to thank you for joining us on Work Human Radio. I'm really happy to be here with you. So I personally find your background so inspiring. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work with Nelson Mandela and his government? It was a fascinating time, not just for South Africa, but it was an interesting time in, in the world. Uh, and it was a point at which uh, we were already thinking about taking our business international and moving to the United States, but decided to stay in South Africa longer because there was such an opportunity, um, not only to play a part in the transformation, but also to be able to test our models and see to what extent the work that we're doing could be effective and valuable. Uh, as a country was transforming at the speed that, that South Africa was transforming under under Nelson Mandela. Uh, a very important part of, of that transformation was um, around around business. It was critically important that while the government was focusing more on the social aspects and some of the political aspects of transformation, it was critically important that business was transforming as well, uh, transforming both from the perspective of creating opportunities for uh, previously disadvantaged people, particularly the, the black people of South Africa, um, and also becoming much more competitive and efficient on the uh, on the global scene, uh, so that South Africa could build its economy um, in 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 that process. So while the government was much more involved in the political part, and I was somewhat involved in that, my focus and my organisation's focus was helping businesses transform uh, and become more equitable as far as as far as talent and personnel were concerned, and at the same time, just far more efficient and productive. So obviously, we're aligned, you know, global force and work human with the idea of creating more equitable work environments. And I think it's also interesting how you've worked with such diverse groups uh, over your time from the LAPD to global real estate investment trust uh, on this idea of diversity and inclusion. So, I mean, what's your biggest takeaway in working with just such diverse groups. It's so amazing, Sarah, because I think one of the earliest things I learned, and, and I was astonished by it, it's just become reaffirmed over and over again over the years, is that when you're talking the truth, um, and, and it comes from a place of, 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 of truthful intention, everybody gets it. Um, and it doesn't matter what their educational background is, it doesn't matter what their political perspective is, it doesn't matter what type of industry they're in. When you're dealing with universal truth, when you're dealing something that is foundational to the, the well-being of humanity, everybody gets it. Uh, and I've had sessions, not only have we worked with these very diverse groups which you mentioned, and, that, and that's correct, but sometimes even in the very session, we've had people in the same session who are from the extreme left wing of a, of a political orientation uh, to people who are incredibly conservative. And we're getting exactly the same responses from both and from everybody in the middle of that perspective. 
Um, again, it's just so important that when you speak to people respectfully and you don't condescend and talk down to them and you're not critical and, of them and judgmental of them and you're merely exploring and teaching universal truths, people respond incredibly well. I think that's, I mean, it's great to hear, especially with our political climate today. Right, um, right absolutely. <laughs> so it's good to hear that it is possible. <laughs> so a challenge for many companies is really measuring the effectiveness of these DNI programs. So what's your take on that? That's a really hard one, Sarah, because the tendency is to measure it by numbers of um, of, of different diverse people. How many women are in senior positions? How many African Americans in the United States, how many uh, people of, di of different um, gender orientations, and so on. Um, and, and while that's one of the measures, uh, I think we have to be cautious in, in driving it by numbers because people know how to work those numbers. And there's no point in creating diverse teams that aren't also more effective teams. The whole argument is that you're going to be more effective with diverse teams. And if we're uh, in a hurry to simply put people there so as to get the complexion right and to get the ratios right. There's a, a big chance, and we've seen that happen in companies around the country and around the world, there's a, there's a big chance that you're going to put people into positions and set them up for failure, um, and, and the teams are not going to do as well. So together with measuring the actual diversity of the teams, I think it's really important to be measuring their effectiveness. Has the team become more innovative? More innovative? We argue that a team that is truly more diverse and more important even than diverse is inclusive so that people feel free to bring a different angle to the table. They feel free to ask some hard questions. They feel free to look at something and express their views from a very different dimension. If we really get these types of diverse and inclusive teams, we're arguing they should be more innovative. Let's measure the innovation um, and let's set those measures and see are we seeing improvements. Ultimately, there should be improvements in effectiveness as well. Uh, a diverse team is harder to manage than a, a unicultural team. Communication is harder. You need more patience, uh, more understanding. Um, so there's some areas where we're not going to be as efficient. But in total output, in total outcome of effort, um, a truly diverse and inclusive team will perform better. So we need to measure the performance, not just the numbers of people of different groups that, that are represented. So what business impact have you seen in companies that make real progress on DNI? It's, it's it's enormous. So I think one needs to appreciate uh, that that there is a, a learning curve. Uh, that when a company or a team of people that have been used to functioning in a more unicultural way begin to become truly inclusive, um, at, at at first it's it's a little uncomfortable. It takes a bit of time for people to get used to it, but very very quickly there's a lot of excitement uh, in what people can bring. Uh, and how people do th see things differently and what effectiveness that has. So we generally see um, a change in the culture, um, a lot more respect, and, and people who were previously feeling excluded become very engaged, um, and they become incredibly, incredibly enthusiastic about their work. They bring their discretionary energy into the, into the workplace, which they were previously not doing because they thought it wasn't welcome or wasn't really invited. Uh, and as that starts happening, you see the cultural energy of the organization improve. You see respect levels improve. Um, you see issues around um, complaints and, and HR issues uh, relating to diversity and inclusion 
um, decrease. And more than that, they decrease the, the content changes. So instead of some really serious allegations, you get minor things. People feel a little offended about one thing or another. Um, and I think part of our training in diversity and inclusion is also to help people um, become less fragile and less easily offended. As companies and managers struggle to learn this new way of being, I think it's important that we allow them some slack and that people who are part of this experiment and this change and this evolution understand there are times when people are going to get it wrong and somebody might say something that feels a little offensive and we need to get over that and, and keep moving, provided the general direction is in one is one of much greater inclusiveness. I like that idea of making people feel less fragile. <laughs> I think it's yeah, really the common thing that you see today. Yeah, you know, you know, sometimes you want to say, oh, come on, really? Um, <laughs> you know, get a life and move on. Um, uh, but, uh, but not to be confused with some of the complaints that are very serious. Uh, and mm -hmm. sometimes we do feel disrespected, but, but to be able to understand, somebody sometimes makes a comment unintentionally. Um, somebody makes a, a humorous comment, which in their culture is funny, but isn't isn't funny to me. Um, but one has to accept that and, and, and get on with it. Mm. I think a lot of it has to do with focusing on the positive, you know, which is obviously a global force. We're all about focusing on um, recognition and what things are going well. I think that's also yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, isn't that right? So, for our listeners who aren't aware, you're also an internationally renowned rabbi. Um, so, how has your personal faith informed your work helping companies become more inclusive and collaborative? Oh, an interesting question, and I think that there are two sides to that question. The one is my personal experience, and one is my professional experience. So, so personally, as, as an Orthodox Jewish person, there are lots of times, starting from, from my school days, there are lots of times that I did not feel included. Um, and, and I just took that as normal. I'd, uh, I, in, in some realms, in some areas and groups, I, I am different, and that's okay. So I never really took it as much, but I certainly was, was able to experience what that feels like. Um, and I've also been able to experience of what it feels like to be made to feel included uh, in some large companies I've worked for, in some international um, forums that I've participated in, uh, when all of a sudden you realize people are listening to you and relating to you for who you are, not for how you look, um, and not for what group you belong to, but for the quality of what you're contributing. And, and when you realize that, the feeling of, of respect and validation is enormous. I think from a personal perspective, that experience has helped me empathize with people um, who do feel excluded. Um, as a rabbi, of course, just some of the universal principles of, of human respect and dignity and having grown up in South Africa um, and as a child, not even being aware of it, apartheid was so normal at that time. So that when we did become aware of what was really going on, um, it, it, there was a lot of, of, of you know, guilt, there was a lot of shame involved in that, and I, I certainly experienced that deeply. Uh, so overcoming that and being part of, of helping to improve that, I think, I think was important. So as a rabbi, I think just my focus on the enormous value of every human being. I've just seen how the simplest of people with limited um, education sometimes, sometimes limited experience, just what gems of opportunity they are, what, what, just how full of potential they are, how much I've learned from the most ordinary of people 
Uh, and as as you become more aware of that, I think just my my religious and faith perspective has made it more urgent for me uh, to help workplaces to unlock that that beauty and brilliance that every human being has within them. That's definitely an uplifting message. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of the work that you do requires a lot of um, difficult or maybe uncomfortable conversations. So how would how can we encourage more of that honest and authentic conversation in the workplace? Do you have any advice for our listeners? So, Sarah, I think I think that's something we're, we're confronting in our work at the moment, very, and I'm sure you're experiencing it, too, is that very often the work that is being done in the area of, of diversity and inclusion is sometimes it defeats its own objectives uh, with, with all the best in, of intentions because there is an implication in a lot of the work uh, that we are all biased and um, and, and there's, there's some truth in that obviously everybody has many many people have their biases but when you imply that to somebody else I think you tend to shut them down uh, so the question is how can we open people up instead of close them down as we have these difficult conversations how can we encourage people to look objectively at some of the challenges that they have as individuals and that organizations have without shutting them down and make them, making them feel defensive. Um, and one of the ways we, we do this is, is by focusing more on people's preferences than biases. The fact is most people, and there's enough research to, to bear this out, most people prefer to be among people like them. And that's okay. That's just a natural preference. Uh, and to talk about preference is much less threatening than to talk about bias. So the reason I might want to be with people like myself is not because I'm biased against any particular racial group or gender group. Um, it's just a natural thing that people like to be among people of, the, of their own. Now, once you acknowledge that, I'm open to, yes, but maybe that creates a sense of exclusion for certain people, and that's disrespectful. So what can I do to overcome that? How can I overcome that? It's no longer me having to defend myself. So I think that in our conversations in, in the workplace, uh, we've got to be careful not to be uh, judgmental, not to sound, not to come over judgmental, um, to be open to the fact that people have natural preferences, um, but that there is potential damage and harm that those preferences can cause in a public place like a working place. I like that. So rather than taking a punitive approach with the word bias, you talk about preference. And I think that's... Yes. Like you said, it opens people up. So we, no, what we like to we're, ask... We're certainly funny. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, just saying we're, we're certainly finding that when, when companies are and, and, and individual trainers and, and managers are able to make that shift, they see the change immediately. Well, what we like to ask all of our working speakers is, uh, what does a human workplace mean to you? Now that's that's a, ch a challenging sort of question because it can mean so much, and I, and I think it means the first thing is that to me that the human factor overrides the bureaucracy. When you start making human compromises for bureaucratic reasons, um, I think the human the workplace ceases to be human or, or deteriorates in its humanity. When efficiency always overrides the human. Now, clearly, we can't, we can't run large businesses where every human idiosyncrasy is taken into account. There are needs for efficiencies. Um, but we need to be very mindful of the fact that bureaucracy is inhuman, um, that efficiency at the cost of everything is inhuman, that profit at the cost of everything is inhuman, so that we need to be looking at um, every aspect of what we do 
to check that we haven't lost the soul in, in what we do, that there is a human soul in, in every piece of our business, the processes, the structures of our businesses, the way we approach efficiencies, the way we deal with the human resources and bureaucracy, that in all of it, we retain the soul um, and we're treating individuals in our one-on-one interactions as individual human beings and not as numbers on a spreadsheet or as cogs in a wheel. And that's what working is all about, the heart and soul of your organization, your people. Every little step that we take with the help of organizations such as yours, every little step makes a huge difference in evolving the workplace into um, just something of a higher order. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, David. I'm, we're really looking forward to seeing your talk at Work Human 2019, and I really appreciated the conversation. Thanks a lot, Sarah. I appreciate it, too. It's been great talking to you. Work Human Radio is brought to you by Globoforce, pioneers of the work human movement. Globoforce helps make work more human for millions of people and organizations worldwide. Learn more by visiting Globoforce.com and join the work human movement by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and the Work Human Community Forum on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening to Work Human Radio.